Uh, thanks, Joel, for having me. It's really uh, wonderful to see you again. I see you with a little less hair than what I used to see you <laughs> in Indianapolis. And uh, of course, you've got a little bit of gray in your beard as well. But you look absolutely wonderful. You look marvelous. <laughs> absolutely marvelous, eh? Thank you. It's, Thank I mean, up close, it's dazzling. It's like going to Cartier, looking at the diamond thing, and knowing you can't buy it. And that's what this is. You are fantastic. You Thank look marvelous. regular, maybe not so much, podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications, though I don't think so tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we've got a pretty good crew. Jenny? Hi, I'm Jenny Lin. I'm an assistant professor and physician scientist at Northwestern University, and I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. Swap? Hi, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil. I don't have any conflicts apart from the fact that I love clothalidone. <laughs> Jordy. Hi, I'm Jordy Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I exist to duplicate apparently Swapnil's thought process suggested that I could argue with him. And I tweet at Jordy BC. Josh. Hi, Josh Waitzman here. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. I have no conflicts of interest, and I tweeted Jay Waits. And we have a very special guest. Dr. Agarwal has been a longtime sponsor of myself uh, since I was a resident at uh, Indiana University. Dr. Agarwal is the author of tonight's study. Tonight we are talking about the CLICK study. Why don't you introduce yourself, Rajiv? Uh, thanks, Joel, for having me. It's really uh, wonderful to see you again. Uh, my name is Rajiv Agarwal. I'm a professor of medicine at Indiana University, country doc, and I work at the VA uh, Medical Center in Indianapolis. And I'm so happy to be in this uh, delightful company of Twitter folks. And I actually, my daughter set up an account about a year ago for me on Twitter, and I tweet at Agarwal Rajiv MD as my Twitter account. Outstanding. Outstanding. Part of the excitement about going to ASN Kidney Week is the anticipation of learning new therapies to help our patients. But I think a lot of this excitement ends up being misplaced. And oftentimes, if this is what you're looking for at ASN Kidney Week, you'll go and you'll sit through tens of hours of lectures and you'll come back and you'll think, wow, my practice after Kidney Week is going to look a lot like my practice before Kidney Week. And though we're excited about the advances that nephrology is making, advances that really change the way we treat patients end up being pretty rare. However, occasionally, there will be a diamond in this rough. And Rajiv Agarwal is the lead author for a study that was pushed out at the late breaking and high impact trials. I think it was the highest impact of all those trials. It was rewarded with simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. A few weeks ago, we talked about it, chatted about it on NEFJC on the Twitter chat, 
And here we're going to get a chance to do a deep dive uh, with the lead author of Click. And this is a trial that we've been waiting for for a long time. How long ago did that pilot study come out, Rajiv? There was a pilot study, I mean, a number of years ago. Yeah, 2014 is when the pilot was published. And, you know, of course, it was conceived two years prior to that. So 2012 is when I thought about it. And 2021, it's published nine years from the initial idea to publication. The idea was let's test chlorothaladone at low GFRs. And I remember when that pilot trial came out, I was it was a very convincing pilot trial just showing, hey, this drug is biologically active even at the low G- GFRs. This dogma that we're taught in medical school that thiazides, diuretics, they lose their effectiveness as the GFR falls below 30. How, how large was that trial, Rajiv? Only 14 patients. You know, that trial was 2014, 14 patients, and it was pilot. You know, it was open label. We were trying to test out our various drugs, various doses, you know, 25 milligram was our starting dose. We ended at 100. And that pilot trial taught me, oh God, 100 is just too much. You know, don't go to 100, right? And in fact, uh, those pilot data uh, we tried to use to get a grant uh, funded. And of course, we were triaged multiple times. Uh, They said, gee, you're trying to test a drug that was approved in 1960, uh, and you're coming for, in 2015, you're coming for money for that? You know, how crazy can that be, right? Finally, somebody uh, smiled at us. We got funded to do it. That's that's outstanding. Swapla, you were going to give us some background on this study. You want to, want to give that a try? Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, the triaging part is funny. I was just on a panel at uh, CIHR, which is our version of NIH, and, and we use the word streamline when we triage. And you would think streamline means, you know, you get on the fast track, but actually it means we don't even discuss the grant. <laughs> Talk about valiant speak. Anyway, so so hypertension, I mean, we know hypertension, is high blood pressure is so important in, in uh, chronic kidney disease, but as the GFR goes down, it becomes so hard to control, right? Like the GFR is less than 30. A, you know, with ACE inhibitors, ARBs, or spironolactone, you're set up with hyperkalemia often. Uh, you know, calcium channel blockers, you, they get blamed for the edema, which the patient may have for, you know, whatever reason. Then you are left with uh, using, you know, agents like clonidine and, you know, the the hydralazine and all that stuff. Are, are you saying that the, that the edema side effect is more common at low GFRs or they have lots of reasons yeah. to have edema exactly. and we just blame it on the calcium? Exactly, exactly. So, okay. I mean, they can cause edema, of course, right, at whatever GFR. But once once the GFR is low, people look at, you know, reasons to uh, side effects and stuff. So... I'm not saying calcium channel blockers are not used, but, you know, it's quite possible that they get stopped as in an attempt to improve the edema. Uh, But why not thiazides? Uh, So the dogma has been that thiazides don't work once the GFR is low. And in fact, there were guidelines. Uh, I think the JNC7 said that uh, thiazides shouldn't be used at low GFR. Uh, I think it was a K-Doki as well uh, that said that, uh, you know, at low GFRs, you should prefer to use loop diuretics rather than thiazide diuretics. And I suspect the reason was that they thought these drugs are not effective when the GFR is low. Yeah, the reason they was they were using hydrochlorothiazide. Yep. Quite quite possible, <laughs> exactly, that they were using hydrochlorothiazide and not uh, chlorothalidone. We are chlorothalidone lovers on, on freely filtered or endapamide. Um, so, uh, in fact, I, Dr. Agarwal also did a systematic review in 2012 when I guess this is when the idea was born. And, and the data that we had that he showed was like really, really small trials from way back, you know, 50s and 60s of N of 7, N of 8, there were very small trials. They seemed to show that there was something uh, which led to, you know, this, uh, the, the pilot trial being done. Wait, so even, even before 2014, there was data that these drugs were effective at these low GFRs? So the systematic review covered those trials, but these are, you know, 
trial with seven patients, eight patients. Some of them are single arm. So it's really not convincing data. It just shows that there is some signal there rather than, you know, a clear uh, signal that uh, these drugs work. Okay, so we'll just flip it over. What was the, what was pushing people to say that they were not effective? Why is this, do- where did this dogma come from? Is that just kind of out of thin air or was there some data to support the fact that we don't use them at low GFRs? I think it was more of a lack of data and Dr. Agarwal can correct me. It was more of a lack of data that, you know, they do work at that low GFRs. It's absence of data and uh, belief that they don't yeah. work rather than evidence that they don't work. I, I feel like the belief here is really strong, right? Like you give someone a loop diuretic and you see an action within hours and you know it's working and you give someone a thiazide type diuretic and you don't see like the massive urine outflow and and we feel like we know that so much of hypertension is volume driven it just feels like it should make sense that that loop diuretics should work better in this population but again that's just not backed up by the rigorous data that i feel like we presumed it was and how often do we only use htc 12.5 like the homeopathic dose that shouldn't be used for anything exactly and how often are we using torsamide 100 or something that really is kicking the pants off of diuresis. Yeah, exactly. And is it also possible that many of these patients do need a loop, right, for volume once the GFR is going down? And people thought that, hey, if we are using loop, we should not be using a thiazide along with it. Perhaps it's like it was a replacement rather than, you know, hey, you can still use a thiazide along with the loop. Yeah, as we so we certainly saw a lot of that in this study. Okay, so the, we, had a, we have this dogma, we have some thin data that it might be used, we have this pilot trial that showed that there was some effect there. Anything else important in the background? No, I think this is it. Like the pilot trial was really useful uh, uh, and pilot trials are always useful to show that A, you can enroll patients and do a trial, but two, that these these drugs can be used, that you can implement it and there is some signal of, of benefit uh, there, uh, but you know, just the fact that you can recruit and enroll patients like that is a very useful uh, study to get uh, funding done, uh, and which led to the you know final trial, uh, which which Dr. Agarwal, it was funded by NHLBI, right? Right, it was. So Swapnil, you make a very important point, and let me emphasize that. You know, when we do clinical trials. We want to do pilot trials, you know, because uh, what uh, this uh, pilot trial, first of all, you know, I wasn't doubtful that we were not going to be able to recruit. I was very confident we would. But the pilot trial really tells you the nuances on the dosing, for instance, right? We started with 25, 50, 100. What we ended up using in the trial was 12 and a half, 25, 50. Right? So you says, okay, this is not a dose that I would go with because 25 seems to be too much for certain patients, right? If I had to do the trial all over again, I'd start with 6.25. Even 12.5 is too much for many people, right? Especially people who are on loop diuretics, it might be just too much. And I think that this is very important for us clinicians when we are designing trials is to have direct experience with the drug. If we don't, then we are in trouble. Second, what I learned from this trial is there's a huge placebo effect. We actually just had a run-in period of two weeks. And in two weeks, the blood pressure declines about 12 millimeters, (laughs) right? Just observing them for two weeks, the blood pressure declines before we even start treating. So I said, okay, when I do the trial, I want to do a two-week run-in First of all, you will know what the placebo effect is, and then you do a placebo control trial. So a lot of placebo effect is kind of gone. And you can see, even with clinic blood pressure monitoring, after two weeks of placebo running, there's not much of a placebo effect, even with clinic blood pressure. With ambulatory, no problem. But even with clinic, there is none. 
if I had started right on day one, placebo versus drug, there would be a placebo effect. So you kind of learn it from your pilot. Says, okay, how am I going to design the trial and how do we optimize? And the two-week period, placebo, is very important. People change their minds. You know, there was one patient who had placebo for two weeks. He says, doc, I don't know what you're giving me. It's caused me such bad rectal pain. <laughs> I'm not going to do your study. <laughs> Seriously, that's what he told me. He dropped out of the study before he got even did the ambulatory, right? You give people placebo and they can't take it for two weeks and they can, will change their mind. They will drop out. And that's why it's so important to sort of give people say, hey, are you serious about the study? So remember, stage four, CKD is renalism, right? Stage four CKD, nobody recruits in trials, right? Even if you look at the SGLT2 inhibitor or finerenone trials, what's the lower GFR? It's 25. My upper limit is 30. I'm going 15 to 30. I'm studying patients nobody wants to study. And even then, I'm losing only 12.5% of the ambulatory. So the completion rate is so good. Why? Because we screened out people early on. So you know, 400 people who signed the consent form and 160 getting randomized. How come? Well, the GFR is out of range, ambulatory is out of range, they change their mind, whatever. So I think people say, oh, this is not generalizable. I said, you know, this is generalizable because it, this is the real world. People will not do stuff that they want. And it's a phase two, right? This is not an outcomes trial that I'm looking at. I want to maximize my success to get a repeat ambulatory blood pressure monitoring done after 12 weeks. So that's the genesis of this whole thing, is the pilot study teaches you a lot. Okay, Jordi, why don't we hit it? Why don't we hit some methods? Definitely. Uh, if nothing else, I love the run-in phase because it's just so reminiscent of the Simplicity 3 trials issue. With, uh, this was the trial that was a renal denervation trial where the, one of the, gr the group that underwent sham controls, blood pressure, declined just about as much as the group that received the renal denervation because it's just such a powerful thing to be enrolled in the study. The huge take-home message there. <laughs> so in terms of the method, the patients initially had this one-week run-in period where they were just asked to do home blood pressure monitoring. For a week, uh, they were supposed to check their blood pressure twice uh, twice a day uh, with, a, uh, with three blood pressure readings per sitting uh, after resting for five minutes. Then they were asked to return for a second visit to actually start the run-in where they were placed on this placebo uh, in order to get them out of, out of their Hawthorne response. And at that time, they were also addressed with having um, with, with having their antihypertensives all... I didn't know what a Hawthorne effect was till just a few years oh. ago. So just so for you know the people that are as dumb as me listening to the, to the podcast... The, the Hawthorne effect? Yeah, it's, it comes from uh, this actual, this electrical company where people, uh, they were trying to figure out what level of lighting patient, people were more likely to work at, or if they would like work harder uh, at different levels of lighting. And what they discovered was that if, it, if employees know that they're just being watched, they work harder. It has nothing to do with what the level of lighting is or whatever other intervention you do. And that's why it's so important to have a placebo arm whenever you do a study, because you want to make sure that it's not just the act of being in the study and being watched that's causing the person to have a beneficial effect or a negative effect from treatment. Thanks. Yeah. And so, uh, so yes, at this at, during this run-in period, everybody was put on uniform regimens. And so, if patients were on an ACE inhibitor, they were all put on the same ACE inhibitor. Everybody was put on lisinopril between twenty and forty milligrams. If they had been on an ARB, they were all put on losartan uh, between fifty and hundred milligrams. Same thing with in terms of calcium channel blocker. If they were on any dihydropyridine, everyone was put on amlodipine uh, ten milligrams. Whoever was on a beta blocker was put on a tenolol twenty-five to hundred, and whoever was on a loop diuretic was put on torsamide 10 to 20 milligrams a day. I feel like I read a lot of hypertension trials. 
I don't remember seeing this in other trials. Is this is this a standard move or is this kind of different for this trial? People have had different approaches to this. So, you know, when you're doing a single center trial, right, you want to be able to make it as uniform as possible, right? You can have varying doses. They can have very different uh, half-lives. They can have different interactions. And it says, look, I have an opportunity that I can standardize the medication. Uh, it's a single-site uh, study, and I can uh, do it, and it'll probably give me a more reproducible effect of the drug because everybody is on similar background medications, right? Say, for example, if you were doing an animal study, you want people to be pair-fed, the animals to be pair-fed. They want to have the same genetic background, right? You want to control for as many external variables as possible before you put in the intervention. So I thought that, look, we are giving them a placebo run-in. They're going to have two weeks of uh, uh, coming back anyway, and we can standardize the medication. So, you know, somebody is not taking twice a day Lasix, and, you know, you just get once a day torsamide. And, you know, we that's how my thinking was that just to make it more uniform so you can isolate the antihypertensive effect of the study drug more accurately. Did you have trouble with pushback from patients? Occasionally, the cardiologists would say that, look, yeah. I was going to yeah, say the cardiologists yeah, must have hated this. Yeah, just, right? uh, they hated just metal, two, right? No, they're just two or three uh, patients who wouldn't change uh, carvedilol, and we said, okay, we'll just continue on carvedilol. But, you know, they, uh, atenolol, uh, actually, the literature comes from Canada. Uh, they did uh, what we call evidence-based beta blockers, and atenolol was the non-evidence-based beta blocker. <laughs> and when they did a pharmacoepidemiology study in Ottawa, uh, they found that, you know, the heart failure hospitalization was uh, as much reduced with atenolol as with evidence-based. And these are people with kidney failure. This was a study that was published in NDT. I and Dr. Patrick Rosignol wrote the editorial for it and said that, look, atenolol costs a penny a pill. I paid $10 for a 1,000 pills. Of atenolol, <laughs> it's a. I pay more for shipping than the drug itself, right? And it but, works. But I, just want, I want to. I want to make sure. Like, am I, am I right that the, that the there, there have been big uh, uh, beta blocker trials in heart failure, and the old and the and there's three that have crossed the finish line for heart failure in the RCTs. It's uh, bisoprolol, carvedilol, and metoprolol. Metoprolol sucks in eight. Yeah, people are real particular These about are the, the evidence based those are, those are the ones that have crossed the finish line for an RCT. They have an indications for heart failure. Right. But, you know, stage four kidney disease will not be one patient and no, in any and, of and those trials. Right. And nobody enrolled in those trials had right. advanced kidney disease. Right, right, right. right. And, you gotcha. know, I can okay. say that, you know, in Canada, we have data in, in people with kidney failure where they show that atenolol really works well. So I, I like it, you know. And, and it also feels that in a lot of the a lot of the hypertension trials, mainly in the 90s, that atenolol ended up being in the control group in a lot of these trials. <laughs> and looked like the punching bag of antihypertensives. Oh, I'll tell you why it was so. Because atenolol, in, if you have normal kidney function, it has to be dosed twice a day, okay? Atenolol is a drug that is not metabolized by the body. It's excreted totally unchanged by the kidney, and its half-life increases as your kidney failure progresses. That's why I can dose the drug three times a week in dialysis patients. Metoprolol, for instance, is metabolized by the liver, and one of its metabolites is excreted by the kidney. Now go figure how you're going to do, dose this drug. Atenolol is very simple. You're getting a heart rate that is low. Sorry, I'm going to reduce your dose. 
right? Uh, it's based on, this is pharmacokinetics, pulse rate. <laughs> it's basically, you know, you titrate the uh, drug to that. Yeah, some people do get bradycardic, but you're going to yeah. drop it to 12 and a half milligrams. Okay, and this is why we never get through the methods. Can I raise got, one? We're in the run-in, we're still in the run-in I, I actually have a run-in period question. I know we keep referring to this as the, the placebo two-week run-in, but... I feel like that the standardization of blood pressure medicines may actually be as important or more important as the two weeks of placebo here. You're actually going in and giving people a really good blood pressure regimen to control their blood pressure beforehand. And they know they're being watched, like Jody has said, Hawthorne effect, and they know they're getting in a trial. Those things may be driving improved blood pressure during your placebo period as much as the yeah. act of taking a not active placebo, right? I just want to make sure we're, yeah, we're talking about that. Getting people off of ferrosamide and putting them on torsamide, I bet, yeah. is, a big, is, a big, is a big factor there. So actually, if you just Google placebo effects in uh, uh, hypertension trials, placebo run-in, uh, people have actually written on this. What is the value of doing a placebo run-in? That's kind of pretty standard practice in the old hypertension trials that we did placebo run-ins. And in fact, uh, even in the finerenone trial, right, we basically said, hey, you need to have a long run-in period. When we were actually designing the trial, I said, you need to have a long run-in period. We had a four to 16-week run-in period before we actually randomized the patients. Having that long period actually gets the people who don't want to do your study out. And, you know, 13,900 patients screened, 5,600 randomized in finerenone. You can see there's so much dropout happening. That ha is happening during the run-in period. You don't want those dropouts happening after you got randomized. Okay, Jordi, let, let, let's motor through these methods. Well, we, we mentioned in terms of uh, excluding the folks that didn't end up meeting that bill. In terms of the people that ended up staying in the study, they had to be people with CKD stage four. So their EGFR had to be from 15 to less than 30. We're in a post-2021 NKF ASN world. So that was a, a 2009 CKD epi EGFR based on creatinine, or were we had a cystatin? No, no, this I mean, was, that was MDRD. MDRD. Yeah, because this, was older. Oh, this my was older. God. oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, this was an MDRD. <laughs> That's what we were doing in the VA at MDRD. And, you fair, know, fair enough. actually, at that, at that level of GFR, it probably is very little difference between the two. Yeah, talk about generalizability. MDRD. Okay. Okay, just makes check. it fit more with what most hospitals have been doing uh, for too long. Two thirds of all hospital laboratories still do yeah, MDRD. Correct. It's yeah, it's insane. Crazy. And then uh, uncontrolled hypertension was the other major inclusion criteria. So that was determined by the ABPM that was now done after their run in period. Uh, everybody underwent 24 hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, which is Rajiv Agarwal's expertise. And uh, they had to have an, a mean 24 hour blood pressure that was greater than or equal to 130 or, uh, systolic or 80 diastolic, and it had to be less than or equal to 160 systolic or 100 diastolic, which after all these titrations and after introducing somebody into a placebo period is pretty hard target. It seems like a wide range, but we can understand now what Rajiv was just talking about in terms of the number of people that ended up excluded just from that alone because of the fact that they became moving targets. And then the other exclusion criteria, if that people had had a prior stroke or myocardial infarction, if in the past 12 weeks they had a hospitalization for heart failure, and if they were on high-dose loop diuretics, which was defined as furosemide, more than 200 milligrams or a torsamide more than 100 milligrams daily. Um, so our common uh, later stage kidney disease doses. And if they were receiving a thiazide or thiazide diuretic, of course, in the 12 weeks before they were randomized. 
in terms of the procedures, other than that, the whole rest, the actual part of the trial when people were receiving medication at this point, once they finished their 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, they were blindly randomized to either receive chlorthaladone 12.5 milligrams daily or placebo. And both the placebo and chlorthaladone were doubled at every four-week period if they still were not under control in terms of their blood pressure. Based on ambulatory? No, based on clinically. No, based on office. Yeah. Well, it was actually based on home blood pressures. We had Based on the home. Right. So we actually had the patients measure their own home blood pressures for one week prior to their clinic visits, which happened every four weeks. And that's how you titrated. And that's how you titrated. So they just did, the ambulatory was at the beginning and the end. Correct. Right. right. You can't do three ambulatories. You won't get the study done. <laughs> And then, okay. and then it wasn't titrated if somebody had orthostatic hypotension, particularly symptomatic, if they had hypercalcemia, uh, since chlorthaladone can exacerbate hypercalcemia due to tubular uh, reabsorption of calcium, if they had hypokalemia, since we all are told to be cautious of chlorthaladone, since it causes more hypokalemia than hydrochlorothiazide does, which is usually a benefit for our CKD patients. Uh, that was defined as a potassium less than three. If they had ga- acute gout that was severe, or if they had poorly controlled diabetes. And then the outcome was collected at 12 weeks. So after they could get to a maximum of 50 milligrams of chlorothaladone for for the final four-week period, this was 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, which as uh, Rajiv mentioned previously, was done in all except for 20 patients uh, at that final time point. And then there are other secondary outcomes that were assessed uh, at that time point. It was urinary albumin to creatinine ratio, and also NT pro BNP level, renin and aldosterone levels, and total body volume, which was assessed using this very, very cool technique that I was not aware of, um, using air displacement plethysmography. So let me tell you a little bit about this technique. Uh, This air displacement uh, plethysmography is uh, like dunking a person in water, right? It's the Archimedes principle, essentially. So in the past, we would uh, measure body density by the amount of water displaced by the body and the weight of the person. That's how you measured body density. Here, you put the patient in in a big Uh, Easter egg-like structure, looks like a spaceship, and when they sit inside it, it displaces a volume of air. Uh, The instrument uh, calculates, you know, it calibrates the pressure inside the chamber and outside the chamber and tells you how much volume of air did the person displace. That's very, very good. You know, even in the pilot study of 14 patients, I could detect changes in body volume uh, with just 14 patients with this uh, air displacement plethysmography. So, you know, what do we do clinically? We measure, we look at edema, you know, one plus, two plus, three plus, right? Here, you're basically looking at the entire volume of the person. How many liters were you before I started you on diuretic and how many liters are you now? So this is super cool. Like, I'm totally ready to dork out on this technology. Is there a reason you can't just weigh the person on a scale? (laughs) Yes, so so the same, 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 uh, well, very good question. We weighed the patients and because you're putting them in this fancy instrument, they have have to get into a bathing suit before they can be weighed because the scale is sensitive to one gram. So when you actually make the measurement like this, your weights are pristine. They're nothing like what you do in the hospital. You're going to get one gram 
change in weight will be detected by the scale. Your bathroom scale is sensitive to 100 grams. Here, you're sensitive to one gram. So yeah. Here it's got to be the same bathing suit every time. Otherwise, you're, you're going to be able actually, to tell the difference. Uh, to tell you the truth, we actually have a washing machine in our lab. So these are spandex shorts. These are prescribed for measuring total body volume. Uh, so now we know why there were more men than women in the study. <laughs> <laughs> and why there was such a high dropout rate. I think once you bust out the spandex shorts, you're like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. They pulled out the Speedo and people are like, nope. no, 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 I'm out of here. <laughs> this is not a European blood treasure trial. You're not going to get me into that. That's fine. <laughs> no speedos. Okay. Jordy, anything else you want to talk about? The really stats? quick, the stats. So the study was powered to uh, to see a six millimeter mercury difference in blood pressure between baseline and 12 weeks across the groups. FDA usually requires a minimum of four millimeter mercury difference by ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. This is different than what you would expect to see in clinic blood pressure monitoring uh, because ambulatory blood pressure monitoring tends to be much more sensitive to small changes. It tends to be considered more clinically significant if you see a smaller change. And then other than that, it was an intention to treat analysis and then they did a sensitivity analysis that was complete case. Uh, what that means is what I was describing earlier, where they included absolutely everybody in the analysis, no matter what happened, whether or not they stopped the medication, whether or not they got an ambulatory blood pressure monitor at the end, everybody was included in the main in the main analysis. But then the sensitivity analysis, which showed similar results, was uh, used complete case, which was only those people who actually finished therapy and actually finished their ambulatory blood pressure monitoring at 12 weeks. Uh, and then one other tiny thing that I had forgotten to mention earlier on, which I did want to ask Rajiv about, um, in the inclusion criteria, actually a pretty big thing is that the antihypertensives were restricted to people had to either be on an ACE inhibitor or A or B or a beta blocker and then anything else. And we were just so curious why beta blocker and not dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Very good question. So, you know, it's based on a trial that was done in Oxford. It's called the ABCD trial. Or they came up with the mm -hmm. ABCD rule. So, you know, basically what they showed was that if you combine a drug in A or B, with a drug in the C or D, they are synergistic. A is uh, ASOR, B is beta blocker, and C is calcium channel blocker, D is diuretic. So I said, okay, I'm testing a diuretic. I want to synergize. Not everybody is going to be on an ASOR or would be eligible for it because, you know, they're people who might be hyperkalemic, et cetera, right? And if your albuminuria is less than microalbuminuria, you're not, you know, you don't need a ASOR by necessity. So I said, okay, you can be on one or the other. And because you are combining the D to synergize with A or B, I think that that's an important component of the trial design. That is really interesting because I think a lot of people um, sort of had this this concern, well, the beta, beta blockers aren't first-line agents. Why is that? Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. you, when you do A or B on one side and put a D on board, then it's more synergized. synergized. So, so did, it was a deliberate... Uh, to reach that, did you have to change a lot of regimens on folks? Or was that no, a requirement? No, because most, uh, you know, when people come in, they are on ASOR. Say somebody is on only a calcium channel blocker. Then we would say, okay, does the patient require a... ASO ARB or a beta blocker. And depending on that, we would start somebody, but that would be before they got randomized, right? So very few people required that, but you know, there would like two people who couldn't be on a beta blocker. One patient simply stopped taking it. At the time we, we said, okay, the patient is pretty hypertensive. We randomized her anyway. And there was one more patient who said was taking it, but wasn't taking it. So there were two people in the entire trial 
who are not on ACE, ARB, or a beta blocker. So, so Rajiv, I, I really appreciate the insight into why the focus on beta blockers here. And I think the trial is exceedingly well thought out and well done. The issue I see is as a single center study, the thing people are going to harp on is that there's something unique that you do at Indiana that the rest of us don't do in the rest of the world. And I wonder if most other centers are using beta blockers to this frequency, because I, I know that I don't. And I think the places that I've trained have probably not done as much beta blocker as they have pushed calcium channel blocker, ACE ARB, and diuretic as my top three choices for blood pressure management, and beta blocker is fourth or fifth. I don't think that limits the generalizability of the trial, but I wonder if that's um, a critique that you're facing or, or dealing with and, and how you address that. Josh, great question. I think that, you know, we have to see this as a drug when you're putting people on chlorothalidone on top of ACE ARB or a beta blocker, it's saying that, you know, it's actually enhancing the ability of the drug to lower blood pressure. If you give chlorothalidone by itself in the absence of these other drugs, you might not get this effect, especially in stage 4 CKD, right? If you gave this drug, for example, in a patient only on calcium channel blocker and you give chlorothalidone, it won't synergize because you have to be on one of the other two. So it's a perfectly valid criticism that, you know, is the drug going to work in the absence of ACE, ARB, or beta blockers? The answer is, I don't know. If you had to push me and say, take a guess, I'd say, it'll probably not work as well. You probably would need to use a higher dose. Totally fair. Th thank you for engaging with that. I appreciate it. Okay. Jordy, anything else on methods or we done? I I'm, I'm done. I promise to stop talking. <laughs> Jenny, we got some results here. We do. We do. Okay. So as Rajiv was saying, there were many more patients screened than who were ultimately recruited into the study. Uh, so there were close to 3,000 patients screened and about half were potentially eligible. But after consenting and the run-in period that was mentioned before, 160 patients were randomized, 81 to the chlorothalidone group and 79 to placebo. And 140 had completed the 12-week trial period. In this cohort, the mean EGFR was about 23 mils per minute. And at baseline, 60% were on blue diuretics, and then as we mentioned before, 99% were on an ACE, ARB, or beta blocker. The majority of the patients uh, were white males and 40% self-identified as black. There were almost no Asians or Hispanics in the trial, but in terms of other characteristics, the mean baseline blood pressure was about 140 over 70, a mean BMI of 32 to 33, 25% were smokers, and the median UACR was around 800 milligrams. Per in the chlorothalidone group, the mean dose received per day was 11.5 milligrams, at four weeks after the initiation, 18.3 milligrams. Wait, wait, slow, down, slow down. The starting dose is 12 and a half. How, 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 how do we get uh, just 11 milligrams? Right? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> is that people just not taking the drug at all? Is that, what, is that what that is? You basically count the pills and you sort of say, okay, oh, oh. right? You <laughs> say, okay, how much did off. you take? That's the average dose. Some people would stop. Okay, so missed doses, right. people stopped. Okay, fair enough. Result you're seeing at four weeks is really totally with the 12 and a half milligrams, and you're getting almost 10 millimeter reduction in blood pressure. And I think that's an important message that you don't need a lot of chlorothalidone to produce a very reasonable reduction in blood pressure. Can I ask a logistic question? So, so the one annoying thing about chlorothalidone is it only comes in 25 milligram pills. 
Yeah. Did you pre-cut these tablets for the people when you were handing them out? Did you give them all <laughs> pill cutters? No. Encased in some kind of gelatin, right. right? No, actually, so we actually have a research pharmacy. And what he does is he gets chlorothalidone powder and puts it in capsules. And the fill in each capsule is the same. So he will put lactose powder or whatever, cellulose powder, so that the weight of the tablet on the placebo and the treated side is exactly the same. So these are custom designed capsules that people are getting. It's all done by the research pharmacist. So I have no idea what he's getting. And he's the guy who has the code, right? Because I'm double blind. And, and so we all had to declare conflicts interest at the beginning, and I know you didn't declare any here. I just want to make sure that, that you're not starting a side company to produce 12 and a half milligram chlorothalidone pills and ship them out all over the country. I want to make sure our listeners I think answer. 6.25 is even better. Yeah. 6.25 is even better. You know, there's a misconception. There's a 3 to 1 equivalence between... Uh, it's 3 to 1. 3 to 1 between hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothalidone. So you're using 12 and a half. It's almost like 37.5. So Matt yeah. Weir and I had written an editorial. There was a a paper by Metrazan. It was a meta-analysis, Petrazan, in hypertension. I mentioned it in the bibliography. And, you know, they, they have this three-to-one ratio between uh, hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothalidone. Yeah, during the chat, this came up. And, and interestingly enough, in India, it seems they have a 6.25. Yeah, they have all those low And they have, a, they have a 3.75 as well. Okay, so we're at four weeks. <laughs> People are at 11 milligrams. Well, yeah. Jenny, what do you uh, got? By 12 weeks, uh, 23.1 milligrams. Wait, wait, so, so at, at, at what, at eight weeks, we're at 23 milligrams? No, no, oh, I skipped eight weeks. I just went to 12 weeks. Eight, oh, eight but, weeks, we're at 18.3. Okay, so, so I'm just trying to get, step so up, it yeah. sounds like roughly half the people had to titrate up. Is that pretty close to what, it, to get to 18 from 12 and a half? At the at the four week mark, it sounds like about half the people titrated up, and it sounds like some more yeah. kept titrating up. I, I guess I'm wondering, but not that many, right? It, yeah, it, it's it, in it, the it, it's in the supplementary uh, figure. I mention it in the footnote. I don't recall offhand, but you know, twelve and a half is a good dose. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. no, it really, it, it's, it's impressive. Okay. Yeah to the primary outcome, uh, which was the mean adjusted treatment effect of chlorthalidone was a lowering of systolic blood pressure by 10.5 millimeters of mercury, and for diastolic, it was 3.9. And then this didn't seem to be uh, changed by the presence or absence of previous loop diuretic use, and the percentage of patients who dipped their BP at night more than 10% also did not change significantly. Of note, the treatment effect was similar across all subgroups, and these included those that were stratified by sex, age, urinary sodium, UACR, plasma renin, and plasma aldo. Body weight and body volume also decreased. There were also changes in plasma renin and aldosterone, as well as a NT pro-BNP, which fell. There was also a drop in UACR and EGFR, and this drop in the UACR and the chlorothalidone group was reversed on discontinuation of the drugs. So this suggested that there was a hemodynamic mechanism at play, and we'll come back to the EGFR in a minute. In terms of adverse events, some unsurprising metabolic disturbances were noted to be higher in the chlorothalidone group compared to placebo, and this included hypokalemia. There were zero in the placebo group, which may not surprise you in advanced CKD and a Western diet, um, hypomagnesemia, hyponatremia, hyperglycemia, hyperuricemia, although not 
necessarily more cases of acute gout. And the chlorothaladone group also had more orthostatic hypotension and presyncopal symptoms as well as AKI. And the serious adverse events requiring hospitalizations between the two groups were slightly more actually in the placebo group, but about even. Finally, there was an observational follow-up period of up to three years, which started two weeks after the assigned regimen was discontinued. So for, uh, 49 patients, 29 in the placebo group and 20 in the chlorothaladone group, dropped in their EGFR to below 10 underwent long-term dialysis or died. And this hazard ratio for chlorothaladone versus placebo for these outcomes with adjustment for loop diuretic use at baseline was 0.63. With the confidence interval of 0.36 to 1.13. And the re- important right. part is that the 1.13 is your risk, right? I mean, how much, whenever you have a drug that is uh, reducing kidney function, you have to ask yourself, is this harming my patients? That's why I'm very interested in looking at the upper bounds of the hazard ratio. My trial is not designed to look at kidney disease protection. I just want to know how much I could be potentially hurting people. Am I putting people on dialysis? And the upper bounds is 1.13. I said, okay, at most it's a 13% risk, but there's a Mm. potential benefit, which is 37% um, uh, on average, right? Because 0.63 is the hazard ratio of the outcome. Of course, it's not statistically significant, but I'm just putting it out because when I was writing the paper, it says, how do you know this uh, this reversible changes in creatinine are not important, right? And that's why I looked at those data for the long-term follow-up. Uh, sorry, and in this obs- observational period, did did they come off the chlorothalidone or was that? Very good that- question. So if when we stopped the study drug and they came back two weeks later, we were of course blind. If the blood pressure went up seven over three, seven systolic up, three diastolic up, home blood pressure, then we would start them on chlorothaladone, right? We presumed that they were on chlorothaladone, that they were responding to it, and we would uh, give them chlorothaladone. If they didn't have that increment in blood pressure, he says, okay, you probably want placebo, we won't do anything. But that was uh, part of the protocol. Because, you know, you can't stop the trial and let people have wild hypertension. They could be on 50 milligrams of chlorothaladone, right? And they could stroke out on you, right? So you have to do a soft uh, landing, and, you know, you have to transition them to something which can which can protect them. So, so to clarify, if, if folks ended the trial with still uncontrolled hypertension at the two-week follow-up and you saw them, would you think about starting them on chlorothaladone yes, or could, medicines at could, that point? Yes, we could. We could. Absolutely. Uh, Josh, good question. And sometimes we would. You know, because look, 14 weeks there, trial is over. We want to do the best we can knowing what the patient has. If the blood pressure has gone up, if you are still poorly controlled, we would all use all the techniques to get your blood pressure down. You're, you got a second ambulatory blood pressure, it's still high, do something about it. Just don't leave me on placebo. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed with the adherence. In the placebo group, it was 96%. In the uh, chlorthalidone group, it was 88%. I know that's a sh- pretty short trial, and I figure that's probably part of it, um, and also the run-in. But can you comment a bit on that, like why you think the adherence was so high? Yeah, so adherence, you know, Jordi, the adherence has to be taken with a little bit of a pinch of salt. We are counting the pills, right? We dispense the pills, we count the pills, and we say, okay, you took X percent of the pills, so you was adherent this much, right? If they didn't take the pills, they threw it in the trash can and gave me an empty bottle, I'll still call them adherent, right? So it's not like I'm doing a mass spec on them and seeing the metabolites of these drugs. 
But you know, the fact that this medicine is really long acting, half the effect is still remaining after two weeks after stopping the drug. That was, yeah. my, that was my next question, yeah. You yeah, sort yeah, of say, okay, still... if you missed a few doses, it's probably still working on you. Who cares? Yeah. yeah. So do you think it's just because of the run-in period that people were just so willing to take it? Do you think it's the nature of the drug itself being so tolerable? What are your thoughts on just sort of why it was? I think it's the uh, study team is great. You know, we they take great care of the patients. My patients who are participating, they are very good about it. They ask me, hey, doc, when are you going to do your next trial or something like that? <laughs> you know, I've been here 26 years. I think when people participate in these trials, they take it upon themselves to complete it. I think it needs a special group of people. And there's a difference between efficiency, uh, efficacy trial and effect yeah. effectiveness trial, right? We're showing effectiveness, yeah. right? If you do a large trial, you might not find that you get such a strong effect. If they did what they were supposed to, this is what you would find. You measured you measured this uh, aldo and renin. Was anything surprising there, or the aldo and renin both go up on the on the diuretics and move along? I think that needs more analysis. You know, I think that mainly I just wanted to show off that I was saying renin the right way. <laughs> right. <laughs> mainly what I was doing. Matt Sparks would be but proud. Go on, tell, tell us. Yeah, yeah I know. That's exactly right. That was... Those analyses need to be uh, done in a very careful way because. I think there's a lot of information there that can be uh, dug up. And, you know, those analyses will be done. Yeah, it looks like there's at least a trend towards people with lower renin and higher aldo having a greater change in blood pressure and whatnot. So, Jordi, what do you make out of it? You know, you are an expert on renin and aldo. You know, suppress renin, it would make sense. Yeah, right? suppress that renin. volume overloaded. Exactly. That's our marker for volume overload. Some folks might call it a marker for salt sensitivity, and some folks may shoot them for saying that. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's something that a lot of us are measuring. Hypertension people. <laughs> a lot of us are measuring <laughs> renin values just purely to look for volume status. So it seems like very intuitive that these would be the people that would be really responsive to chlorpalidone. And it goes along with, uh, you know, anti-pro-BNP also, right? Uh, could, could I go back to the dose of the uh, chlorothalidone again. In fact, we have in Canada, you know, many things are cheaper, but uh, we have 50 milligram. I don't even have 25 of chlorothalidone, which makes it so messy, right? To make a quarter of that pill is like powder. Often it's like 10 and 15 and not 12.5. Um, and some people say it doesn't matter. It's long acting. So, you know, if you're taking 10 and 15 every other day, it's, it's probably not a big deal. The other thing I've heard uh, suggest is that because it's so long acting, uh, I think Tara Chang or someone uh, on, on during a talk said that you could take 25 milligram every other day, yeah. perhaps. Is, so what, what do you think of right. that? Actually, I'm using 12 and a half three times a week now in a lot of my patients. 12 and a half three times a week can go to 6.25, right? But especially when people are on loop diuretics after I've finished the click trial, I said, you know, I don't want to start you on 12 and a half. That's just too much. I'll start you on 12 and a half, three times a week, because that's equivalent of 6.25. And the anecdotal experience I have from my clinic patients, they respond very well to 12 and a half, three times a week. It's just harder to remember to take it three times a week. But most of my patients take, uh, you know, they have their pill boxes and they just populate each pill box because people are taking a handful of medications every day anyway. So it's not that big a deal for them. And they, I've had fairly good luck with three times a week dosing. 12 and a half, three times a week. If you're needing 12 and a half once a day, it's not a big deal. I, I want to understand the, the practicality of, of why go to the 12 and a half milligram dose first. If the average dose at the end of the trial that's leading to this blood 
blood pressure change is really close to 25. Yeah. Is it wrong to say, I just want to start with 25 and if people are having problems, dial back from there per day? Just because that, that daily dose of medicine is so easy to manage and, and all these cutting pills in half and three times a week just starts to get complicated for people. Right. So Josh, if you use chlorothaladone for long enough, you will have a lot of respect for this drug. This is a very potent drug. And I say, okay, what's the hurry? Uh, use a smaller dose, especially when you look at the odds ratio of uh, reversible changes in creatinine, right? In people on loop diuretic, it's nine. You you put somebody on chlorothaladone 12 and a half once a day, and the creatinine bumps, they go to their primary care, they're going to stop something. You know, chlorothaladone is one of them. And it says, okay, what can I do to minimize that happening I'd say, okay, you're on a loop diuretic, I'm starting you on 12 and a half, three times a week. If your blood pressure is still high, I can always go to 12 and a half once a day. The patient loves it. He says, doc, you're being really careful, aren't you? I said, yeah, but you know, this might work on you. And when they see themselves, you know, with the home blood pressure monitoring, that their blood pressure improved, they don't have a problem. They they will take it three times a week. So, you know, it's a, it's a combination of the side effects and the efficacy, and you want to avoid having this bump in creatinine because that's the biggest uh, negative reinforcement for star- stopping the ACE and the ARB, that'll go away, the diuretic will go away, and the, suddenly the patient becomes hypertensive. Are there folks who you would peel the loop diuretic off to be able to start the chlorothaladone? <laughs> Are you switching people back? Because I feel like that, that's something I'm, I'm doing now after reading right. this trial, but I don't know if I should be doing that. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly reasonable strategy, provided you don't have symptomatic heart. If you're doing it for edema, I think it's reasonable to peel back a little bit loop diuretic and then introduce this gently. But I almost never start anybody on 25 chlorothaladone once a day. 12 and a half, three times a week or 12 and a half once a day, especially with the CKD, right? These are fragile patients. Yeah. Can we go back and say, if we are using such low doses of chlorothaladone, and again, I, I, I somehow can't even make myself say this, but is it possible then to use hydrochlorothiazide perhaps? You know, very uh, good question. And you know, when you look at hydrochlorothiazide, the half-life of hydrochlorothiazide is only two to three hours. Chlorothaladone is like 18 to 30 hours. And the pharmacodynamic effect of this drug is probably two to three days because it's red cell bound and it's very long effect. I think there's something special about chlorothaladone, which is very, very long acting and something very different from hydrochlorothiazide. There is a head-to-head trial, as you know, which is going on in the VA, looking at hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothaladone. And I don't think those results will come out in a few years. We'll know it. With a mortality outcome or a blood pressure outcome? No, it's, it's mortality. a hard outcome. Hard mortality. Outcome. It's, it's a, a huge, it's a huge so, trial. It's 25,000 patients, a pragmatic trial looking at point-of-care randomization to either hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothaladone. Well, because there was that recent, uh, was it a meta-analysis that showed that there was increased mortality with chlorothaladone compared to hydrochlorothiazide, is that right? It's, oh, it's, yeah, it's an observ- was, uh, summer. It's an observational study. Yeah, Yeah. observational study. It's an observational study. Somebody said that. But that's that's like, you know, uh, the sicker people get chlorothalidone, right? There's such a huge selection bias. I I don't think those kind of studies should be even done. Sorry, if you look at the uh, uh, trials which have shown thiazides are better, they are all chlorothalidone, right? Like chlorothalidone. Sprint, all hat. Sprint, all hat, all hat. 
Floor Thalidone is basically the uh, NHLBI baby. And you're more likely to have been seeing a nephrologist, I bet. No one looks at who the provider is who prescribes these medications in these observational studies. We need to do that more. Exactly. Because if you're seeing a nephrologist, there's a reason you're seeing a nephrologist. <laughs> and you're probably also at risk for mortality. I want to talk about the, the albumin to creatinine ratio just a bit. And mainly I want to talk about the adverse events because these drugs are, let's just face it, they're pains in the asses. They have, they cause, you know, you get the hyponatremia, you get the hypokalemia, the hyperuricemia. Like it's just, it's one side effect after another. Like these are difficult, these are drugs with significant adverse side effect profiles. I think that this is a drug that you should give out with your fluid electrolyte books. You know, you will sell more of your books because, you know, you give fluorothaladone and then give a copy of your book because every <laughs> fluid electrolyte abnormality is known to man is produced by chlorothaladone. And I want to take a moment to say that's not a conflict of interest here because the book is free. Okay, you can download the book for free. There's no COI here. We're not trying to push fluid and electrolyte companion books, but it's a great book and you should download it. <laughs> but I mean, jokes apart, this, these drugs are not homeopathic drugs, right? They have a true side effect that potent. They're doing something. You know that it's working when they, they're producing yeah. these things. You know that the patient is taking the medicine. And, you know, that's why I say that, you know, use them with a lot of uh, respect because, you know, a little bit of chlorothaladone goes a long way. So, so I feel like in using these, I, I'm starting medicines like chlorothaladone. I'm checking labs a week or two later. And then as long as the person is fine, I'm kind of not checking for the purpose of checking the chlorothaladone. Is there more nosiness that I should have about the patient's sodium or potassium or uric acid? Or is that a reasonable approach? Or how, how, how do you approach this? You know, um, Chlorothaladone we have been using since 1960, right? We know the side effect profile very well. When you don't know a drug, then you don't know how to monitor it. Here, I said, look, I know the side effects of this drug. I'm going to monitor it every visit, and I'm going to tell people how dangerous this might be so people can use it more intelligently, right? So we measured these numbers at every visit, every four weeks, is that what I do clinically? No, I don't. But I did this so I could inform the people that, you know, these are not innocuous drugs. You know, because when you're doing a clinical trial and you only talk about efficacy, that's just not the full story. Especially with a drug as old as this, you have to talk about what are the potential dangers and what better way can you study it except in a clinical trial. The albumin to creatinine ratio, is that just a, a blood pressure effect, a hemodynamic effect? What, what's going on with that? I think that there's something um, to be said about blood pressure reduction and improvement in UACR. Of course, hemodynamic has got an important role to play. But the fact is you stop the drug and two weeks later, the UACR is still lower statistically compared to baseline, right? So it could be something which is also non-hemodynamic or maybe just the drug is very long act. The fact that it is reducing USCR by 50% is really amazing. You know, in the SGLT2, you get a mean reduction of 30% at four months. With phenernone, you get a 31% reduction at four months. With chlorothaladone, you get a 50% reduction in three months. And chlorothaladone is five cents a pill. Well, and you had a very rapid reduction in that albumin. Within four weeks. Within four weeks. Yeah. I remember being taught that, you know, when you start an ACE number, you really need to wait it out six weeks to see that uh, that ACI reduction. I was well, you know, you're basically how... potentiating the effects of ACE and ARBs. 
also, right? There are actually studies in the past that, you know, people have looked at this, that, you know, if you put people on a low-sodium diet or put them on a diuretic on top of ASNRB, albuminuria improves. I mean, you're getting five times more blood pressure lowering effect from chlorothaladone than you are from SGLT2 or from phenarinone 2. I feel like there's a lot. I feel like as I've seen people and really work to control their blood pressure and follow their UACR, I've been shocked by how much good blood pressure control leads to much improved UACR. Is, is there data that supports some additional mechanism beyond just really excellent blood pressure control here, aside from the we're starting with people that have poor blood pressure control. Like that's how you got into the trial, right? right? You and if, if I'm remembering, a lot of, a lot of those uh, SGLT2 inhibitor trials, they're, they're in the 130s when they start, not in the 140s plus. True. You know, you are going to get a better blood pressure reduction if your blood pressure is high. Yeah. You know, you can't lower a 120 blood pressure. You know, unless you're enrolled in spring. So. I- <laughs> That's okay. I, I was hoping to ask a related question to that. So there was a great quote from, I think it was Catherine Tuttle during ASN uh, about SGLT2 inhibitors, where she was saying that when you see that 25% increase in creatinine when you start an SGLT2 inhibitor, it's a marker of therapeutic e- efficacy. It means that this medication is working. Are you looking for that at this stage in the CKD stage four patients? There's all this controversy at this stage of stopping ACE inhibitors and ARBs as people progress closer to an EGFR 15 because they want to give them a little more room in, each, in their EGFR to help extend until uh, the time until they'll need to start dialysis. Uh, I don't ascribe to that personally. I keep people on their ACE inhibitors, ARBs, as long as their potassium will tolerate it. But the same idea with uh, with these diuretics, particularly chlorthalidones, we're not used to using it in this uh, this advanced of a stage. Are, are, is there a level at which you would stop it if you see an increase in uh, creatinine after starting it, or do you back off on something else? You know, uh, Jordi, that's a great question. I I just do, wouldn't stop it or based on a lab test. Usually these things happen uh, in concert. Patient might be feeling dizzy, lightheaded, blood pressure is dropping, orthostatic, and creatinine up. And of course, you need to back off. Yeah. If you have a increase of 25% in creatinine and your blood pressure is better and the patient is saying, I'm feeling perfectly fine, I'm not going to stop the drug or lower the dose of the drug. Because then, you know, you basically use your clinical judgment. Usually they don't happen in isolation, but if they happen just a creatinine change, I said, keep going. It's reassuring to hear. I do see it in isolation yeah. more often than I would expect. And so it's it's yeah. uh, it's nice when we hear this out loud because I see I feel like I say this sometimes to the primary care docs and they think I might be crazy. Well, you know, also you realize that when we stop the drug, the GFR returned to normal yeah. in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Yet you had a better blood pressure at uh two weeks after stopping the drug, and albuminuria was lower. So these drugs may be actually having some mechanism through their TG feedback, you know. So the TG feedback, you activate it, you drop the GFR, you stop the drug, and the GFR actually comes back to normal, and the blood pressure is still lower. Yeah. So this might be more than just a, a creatinine effect, just a blood pressure effect. It might be a TG feedback too. Okay. Anybody have any final thoughts on uh, the click trial? It's like it, you've stayed. No, no, it was fantastic that this yeah. trial was done. Yes. Thank you. You know, we are really yeah. grateful uh, that this trial was done because uh, you know some of us were already using it, but we were kind of on our own, going on a limb, uh, using it when the guidelines said you should not be using it. So it's phenomenal that the trial was done, validating what some of us were doing, and hopefully many, many more people are now convinced to use these drugs uh, in CKD four. Rajiv, I, I want I want a little inside baseball. Like I read this trial, it's a it's a it's a 
160 people. It's a single center. It's a drug that's been around since 1960. Is that what you said? I honestly was surprised that you got simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. Were you were you surprised when they were receptive? It just doesn't feel like an NGM paper. Yeah, and I, and, I'm, and I don't. This is not a knock. no, no, I no. I know exactly what you're saying. When I got the acceptance letter. I only had gratitude in my heart, okay? I only had gratitude in my heart. I'll tell you why. It was the 160 people who who had participated, right? Each one of those people I had consented. I knew them. And those people spent so much time in doing it, right? It was as if New England Journal of Medicine was honoring the purpose of patients with stage 4 kidney disease and giving the cause a page in the real estate, which is the most expensive in medicine. So I said, it's not my victory. It's actually the victory of the people who participated and their hard work that is going into it. And I told this to the editor. I said, you know, had you not done this, the misery of these people would never be highlighted in a way that you have been. It's been 30 days since this patient, this paper was published. It's been actually viewed more than 30,000 times, which just blows me away that there's so much of an interest, right? So I can only feel grateful to the editor and to the patients who did it. There's absolutely no question in my mind that, you know, without their help, this is uh, another blood pressure study. I think that mechanistic trials are hot right now. I I think that's also part of it. Um, There was just another uh, mechanistic trial of 50 patients that was extremely elegant, similar similar level of elegance of this one, really short-term follow-up, but just collected exactly what was needed to be known. That was published in Jack a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Several of these high-impact journals are publishing some more of these, I think it's because they're starting to appreciate that we don't fully understand how some of these older medications work. They were never studied correctly, and they need to be, and also in different populations. Uh, so hopefully it's opening up a new age. Age. Thank you, Rajiv, for paving the road for that. Um, my first R01 is, is similar to this. I'm not nearly as, as amazing or elegant as it, but but I, I, I think it's, uh, it's something that has generated interest because you went through all the pain to make it happen. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You know, this... Uh... You were right, Joel, uh, hour and a half. It really didn't feel like that at all. I said, what are you going to talk about hour and a half, right? I said, gee, it's going to be a hard stop for me. I'm going to get bored out of my mind. <laughs> when, so hopefully you'll come I, back. When I heard you, I said, wow, this is great. This is uh, friends talking here. Exactly. Outstanding, outstanding. Hey, thanks for joining us. This has been a, this has been a blast. <laughs> Same here. I enjoyed it. Anybody ready for uh, a tubular secretion? Swap, you want to start? Yeah, so I've, I've been missing these tubular secretions because I used to get my TV show recommendations <laughs> from the, uh, from from tubular secretions. You know, that's how I okay, what are you watched watching? Uh, Ted Lasso and, and all that. No, so, so because of that, I started watching, you know, stuff and I found out it wasn't good. You know, so I watched Foundation, which was awful on Apple TV. It was awesome. No, Love no. It was terrible. Miserable. Oh. Terrible. Uh, and then I watched Vila. Terrible. I can't. Oh, I think this so is a level wrong. of nerddom way past me and Jenny. Like, yeah. we're just not. Yeah. And this, so there is, there is <laughs> also. Isaac Asimov is rolling in his grave. <laughs> exactly. And there is this Wheel of Time, which was also just as awful uh, compared to the books. Uh, but really, what, the one that I would recommend you should watch is the Expanse series on Prime. Oh, that's uh, so good. Yeah. It is so it is good. So good. Yeah, the, it, it follows the books. But uh, but the acting is fantastic, you know, Avasarala, Amos, you know, those characters. And then the science fiction part is really well done. 
So watch The Expanse. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, Expanse. Everybody, everybody gives thumbs up to The Expanse because The Expanse is awesome. Though you, though those first few episodes are a little tough to follow, and you got to you got to pull push through them. But it's really good. Okay, that swap is going for The Expanse. Jenny, what do you got? Well, speaking of TV, probably on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of genre is the Sex and the City reboot. And a lot of controversy that they pulled Peloton into that caused Peloton stock to free fall, basically. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Start from wait, the beginning. Wait, what the hell wait, happened? Do you, uh, do you own stock in Peloton, Joel? I do not own stock in Peloton. I have a what are, what are those called a uh, index a, fund an ETF a, an index fund of the Fortune 500 are they that big I have no, no idea are they that big no no they went public not. Okay. not too long so, no. ago or a couple years ago or whatever okay. but you but you have a Peloton I have a yeah that's right it's a we call it the company <laughs> 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 which apparently might save your life <laughs> according to Sex and the City so why what happened spoiler alert basically um, you know there's and middle-aged man uh, who's very wealthy, basically a tycoon in Manhattan, who during the pandemic got addicted to Peloton. And you know, towards the end of the episode, he's the big love interest and husband of Carrie Bradshaw, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Had they gotten married in the previous yes, series? Yeah. They'd gotten so, married in the previous so series. So you're like, okay. oh, you know, they're all starting off happy. What could possibly go wrong now? <laughs> right. Uh, but he was exercising his Peloton and basically had an MI um, as he was getting off the bike. But then- a, Exercise skins. Yeah. <laughs> but then like, you know, a series of things, like he drops his phone, cell phone in the shower so he can't call 911 himself because he's clutching his left arm and his chest. And, you know, she's, you know, kind of taking her time getting home when she gets home she opens the door and then she walks and sees him and stares at him and the time is myocardium right so she stares at him for a while and then realizes oh crap something is wrong and they're like looking at each other for a long time and she doesn't go to call 911 she basically goes and hugs him and starts screaming his name and cries right? you know so not great first days <laughs> Not a great date night for a marriage, right? And then he, he basically dies in the shower. Which is essential for the plot because you have to have an unhappy Carrie Bradshaw for the story. Right, but then all of this, you know, Peloton, I think they had, you know, signed off on the product placement in the show. They had one of their instructors actually doing like a fictitious class for the, sh for the show. And but I don't know if they knew the plot line, which was that one of the main characters was going to die coming off of the God, bike. On a Peloton. And so oh the next God. morning, the stocks plummeted for the Peloton. Uh, but then they made an ad, right? With this, with mm -hmm. They made an ad. So then in the meantime, there, you know, obviously you guys are aware that there's a large physician community that rides Peloton. So everyone's like screaming at the TV, being like, call 911, do CPR. Like what kind of writer, who did the writers consult about the actual like realistic aspect of this? And... Yeah, so then the next day, I think it was within 24 or 48 hours, Ryan Reynolds was promoting the Peloton PR response to this, which was one of the actors from Sex and the Sea, the one who died, with that Peloton instructor doing, sitting in front of the fire saying like, oh, you know, life is short, we should ride another class. And then he's doing the voiceover saying like, exercise is good. And then now, apparently, Swap, you, had, <laughs> you sent us a little message, another update on what was going on. Yeah, so it seems that this guy is not a good guy. The actor. The actor. Um, so now they pulled the PR he's, cover up. Uh, uh, yeah, because yeah, he's, he's being accused, accused of, of sexual assault. They had to pull the P Peloton response ad to the <laughs> And And like the, the Ryan Reynolds stuff is more interesting also because remember the, the ad last year? Was it last year that there was this woman who has a Peloton and she's exhausted? 
uh, and that was like a ad for Peloton, but people were making fun because she looks so tired and exhausted. Oh no, and it was he because flipped, no, terrified. she was and ter- she looked like she was a, she was skinny. Uh, 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 yeah. So she was skinny. She was skinny. And people were like, and, 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 "Oh, she's being fat shamed by her husband." Exactly, exactly right. And 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 uh, Ryan Reynolds turned it around, and uh, he has this gin, aviation gin, <laughs> aviation and he used her. He he used the same actress with in a in a gin ad the next day. Right, it was like that. Uh, which was like sort of making fun of Peloton, saying, "Hey, drink gin and chill instead of exercising or something." Right, like that. right. <laughs> anyway, it's it's a kind of intricate stuff, but uh, he's he's really good at uh, he's Canadian, right? So he's really good at. <laughs> he's Canadian. Well, I'm sure by the time this episode is released, m- much more will have happened in that whole saga. But... And Jenny, what's your relationship with Peloton? Are you a stockholder? No, no, just a just a devoted fan, I guess, and participant. But this whole thing shocked me. Okay. Jordy, do you got a uh, tubular secretion? Uh, should it be a TV show or can it be something else? <laughs> whatever you want, whatever you want. But we got a good thing going with television shows. We got uh, people dying, disagreements about the foundation. If you want to watch John Lennon high on uh, heroin for six very interesting, not so interesting hours, uh, I, Get Back is the new Beatles documentary on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I've been watching that with my partner. It's uh, it's interesting. It's not at all what you expected for the end of the Beatles. I'm sorry, what 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 platform? It's on Disney+. Disney+. Plus. Plus. Disney yeah. Plus. I, I think Peter, Peter Jackson. It's someone. Peter Jackson yeah, uh, and his glorious... No Hobbits. No Hobbits, no but Hobbits his glorious ability to make something that should be two and a half hours be nine hours long. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my, my tubular secretion wasn't going to be that. I was going to give a shout out to my partner because uh, I've always played a ton of Scrabble and I'm very unusual that I get beaten. Uh, and he beat me last a couple weeks ago uh, with a seven letter word that uh, the D was already there and he spelled out diastole. Uh, he is a software engineer, so my work here is done. Wow, okay, nice. Nice. Josh, what do you got? Uh, I'm going to go back to the uncultured TV world of Netflix. Uh, We actually binged uh, the Netflix series School of Chocolate. Have you guys seen this already? Yeah, I saw the ad. I haven't seen it. It's it's awesome. So it's it's a competition show where this self-trained chocolatier, uh, Amari Gishon, has a group of eight pastry chefs, chocolate people, um, who compete to make these incredible creations out of chocolate. And number one, I love chocolate. Number two, uh, the creations are amazing. Like I did not realize chocolate could look like a chandelier or like a tree or like a just beautiful flower or whatever else the things are looking like. But I think the coolest part about this as a competition reality show is I'm used to like at the end of the episode, someone wins and someone gets voted off the island. And that's the model. model. But that's actually not what they do here, which is really nice. It's really designed as like a constructive teaching exercise. So the top one or two people are recognized. The bottom one or two people get like extra lesson time with him. And the whole cohort stays together for the entire show. Um, So it's the same group of characters. And you actually get to see them get better at this skill because they're learning from a master of this craft. And like as someone who has seen really great functional medical education and really not so great functional medical education, like this very build up the weakest person and recognize the excellence of the people at the top was like a really nice balanced model to teaching. Um, so I think from a medical education perspective, it's actually kind of neat too. So, and, and just the, the chocolate is awesome. Outstanding. Outstanding. Okay. My tubular secretion is applications are now open for the NSMC social media internship. It is the applications are 
open until January 9th. And this is an important endorsement to put in because that means I need to get this episode out <laughs> before January 9th. So this is my self-imposed deadline. The last time we did it, it worked out great with the kidney. Or you need to come oh, with wow. another tubular secretion you edit into this part yeah. of the podcast. No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. We did that last time with, uh, we, we had uh, Samira Farouk come on and talk about the her... Uh, Nephrons. Uh, Nephrons. Nephrons. Anybody here a faculty on that group? No. Nobody. <laughs> that's good. I was last year. I have an excuse yeah, to get out this year. year. Yeah, same thing. I, I think there, I, and Swap was a, a faculty and I was faculty. All three of us were faculty the first year. And um, what I'm learning is I need to do less things better than more things rather than more things. Exactly. As well. But the, the, but the faculty looks awesome. But, but we're talking about NSMC. And uh, Swap and I are definitely on faculty of NSMC. I don't think any you know, of the other uh, you know, three of yeah. you don't. We should make I, them. I'm on a but Slack if... workspace, but I don't know if that means I'm faculty or not. <laughs> you are. You are. That means you are. <laughs> Here's the deal is that if you are being, being called a faculty is different than actually being a participant and active member. If you're interested in the NSMC, it's a really cool program, and we highly recommend you apply. It's a people love program. Essentially, we teach you... Uh, all about uh, doing social media. There are four core rotations. One of them is NEFJC. Swapmill runs that. And essentially, you will be writing the summaries. You'll be doing the hosting. You'll be doing the scripts. We give you lots of support for that. We don't throw you out there to, to the wolves. There's a lot of support, but the people love that rotation. It's one of the highlights that everybody gets because it's just a lot of fun to do, and it feels like it's an important thing. Another one of the rotations is uh, podcasting, where we teach you how to uh, record edit and publish a podcast. We have a rotation called uh, blogs and tutorials where people learn to write tutorials. And then one of the highlights of the whole rotation is um, graphic communications by Michelle Lim. She's an absolute master at doing visual abstracts and infographics. And she has a whole curriculum teaching people how to do that. The interns love it. It sounds outstanding. That's the four core rotations. We also have some didactic lectures. We bring in guests. We have really fun lectures. They're outstanding. We do those. Uh, they participate in NEF Madness. And then, you know, we know all these people that are, all the interns tend to be either nephrology fellows or early career nephrologists. We understand that you're busy. We have a lot of flexibility in the schedule. So, you know, you won't get overwhelmed. Nobody ever complains about it being too much work. We don't have a lot of demands on you. It's a lot of, essentially think of it as opportunity rather than demands. So if you're interested in it, just go to nsmc.blog. I think, oh my God, I better double check that website. Hold on, let me just see, make sure I've got that right. Yes, nmc.blog, and that'll put you right on the application page. And uh, it's a simple application. It's a bunch of demographic things. There's one uh, personal statement, and you'll need to attach a CV and get a, it's not even a letter of recommendation. You need to have one of your supervisors, whether it's a program director or your boss or what have you, just fill out a survey. Essentially, we want to know that <laughs> somebody knows you're doing this and thinks that you're that it's not going to be disruptive to your primary career. Very simple. And uh, applications are due January 9th. We'll have the whole cl the whole class picked by the beginning of February, and we'll be off to the races. Okay, guys, we are done. I would rather look for them to feel good. You know what I'm saying to you, darling? <laughs>